You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part two of M Pavilion's annual tag team discussion, M Relay. Now, is she going to stay and co co present with you? You're, co- <laughs> You're welcome to. Are you co presenting? I've got some more paper yep. just in case she needs something else to play with. <laughs> okay. All right, and now I'd like to welcome Dr. Linny Fuong to the chair. And um, Dr. Linny is the founder and the chair of the Water Well Project, which is a very interesting project where they have volunteer uh, doctors, nurses and allied health workers working with people who are new migrants and refugees, helping them to develop their health literacy so they can navigate that system, which as I personally say is a very complicated system. And, um, and give them the tools that they need to assist with that. And recently won a Melbourne Award for that, which is wonderful, yes. Um, as did the M Pavilion. I don't know if you knew that. And as did my music therapy department. So there we go. We're all the award winners here. <coughs> Just wonderful. But it is beautiful work. And um, I will hand over the mantle. Thank pass the you. baton. <laughs> I actually feel quite, um, between you and Donna, I feel like uh, I'm not actually uh, meant to be sitting here, to be honest, after I read what you've done. Um, Can you just give us a rundown? So the first question I had once I did a little bit of stalking was (laughs) how, how, what do you guys actually do like in day-to-day things? What do you do to help people? How does it work? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the concept behind the Waterworld Project is that we go out into the community Um, And so we will meet with people from refugee and asylum seeker background and give them literally kind of practical health education. So we will turn up to a church or a play group or an English language class, for example, and talk, you know, um, yeah, talk through women's health, for example. Um, I think the the big sort of... um, advantage of what we do is that we make things really kind of hands-on. So when we're talking about women's health, we'll pass around pap smear brushes and um, speculums and pelvic models and we get people involved in the discussion. They pick these things up and go, oh, <laughs> what is this? Um, and it's, you know, it's that really sort of engagement with the community. So they're really asking questions about what they want to know. And at the same time, for us as healthcare professionals, we're kind of presenting a, you know, a friendly front and we're going out to their spaces um, instead of them coming to the hospital and, and finding out these things kind of, you know, in a, in a more sort of traumatic way in some instances. Yeah, because in your aim, you talk about um, improving the well-being mm. and health of refugees, asylum seekers yeah. and migrants yeah. with... Uh, improving their health literacy. Yeah, yeah, off yeah. Off the top of my oh, head. Good. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can be our spokesperson. <laughs> uh oh. Um, what do you mean? Can you explain health literacy? Like what that actually means? Yeah. So health literacy is actually quite a complex concept, in that it means to be able to kind of utilise the resources that are available to access healthcare. So you know, it's a really sort of big and and ominous um, definition, but. It just, I guess, to the everyday person, it means that you don't just provide someone information in another language. Like, you can't just provide them with a translated brochure and expect them to figure their way out through a hospital or, you know, get um, get from being at home unwell to a doctor, for example. So, it's really just kind of, you know, because we, you know, we all take for granted the fact that, you know, we know that when we're sick, we go to a GP. When, you know, when we're acutely unwell and need something a bit more urgent, we go to an emergency department. And then you get that piece of paper where you're supposed to pick up some medication. Like, how do you know what that bit of paper is? What's that little green card that people keep flashing around? And, um, and yeah, like, how do you know where to go and, and what that all means? So it's quite difficult. And then you kind of put into the concept that Western healthcare is a lot about preventative healthcare. So why would you get a neat... Like, why would you cause yourself that pain of a vaccination? Mm. Or why would you present for a pap smear like what does that all mean so it's really about making things a bit more accessible to people and allowing these individuals from very different backgrounds to understand how the healthcare system works because you know to face it like we've got an amazing healthcare system it's just about if you know how to use it yeah because that was going to be my next question actually yeah. is the roadblocks to accessing that healthcare system because yeah. yeah. it seems to be a really interesting question that our healthcare system must be formed around Western thinking and Western processes that, like you said, we take for granted. So then is it also how do we translate that to a different belief system so that they understand when they arrive here? Absolutely. So I um, 
So my day-to-day work, I work as a paediatric doctor at the Royal Children's Hospital. Wow, so this is normal to you. Yes, this is very normal. But essentially, like, if you you drove past the Royal Children's Hospital, like, realistically, who would actually think it was a hospital? Like, it looks like a corporate building. Yeah, totally. Um, And, you know, like, when I was working in emergency... A Syrian family rocked up to emergency and they, like, they didn't actually need to be there. They were, you know, they came in for a, a, a GP type of complaint. But I right. was so excited that they made their way to the hospital because how can you tell? Like, it just, you know, the Royal Melbourne Hospital is a very similar example. Like, I don't see any big sort of red crosses outside to kind of indicate to people of different cultures that this is somewhere that you come for medical care. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, to make things accessible, like... I mean, it's such a difficult thing because... And Peter Mack across the road Peter looks like Mac a shopping a, centre. Oh, it's a beautiful building. <laughs> the Guggenheim, we call it. <laughs> it's a gorgeous building. But again, it's just not... You, you wouldn't expect that to be yeah. a place where you would seek healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So and it's not like you arrive, here's a, a lovely person to, s- no, to sit down and no, explain the system. That's and, exactly yeah. right. You get to the Royal Children's Hospital and, as you said, to navigate outpatients... You have to get off on the ground floor and you find this sort of yellow area and, instead, you know, if you go the wrong way, you end up at the meerkat enclosure. (laughs) (laughs) I've been, yeah, yeah. I've been there a lot. (laughs) Or you can find, you know, you find your way around like letters and numbers to try and find a clinic. And just, it's, yeah, I can understand why people get to our healthcare system and go... What? Like, what? where do I go? Yeah. Um, and then if you think about the cultural context of, you know, people who come from developing countries, like, they don't often go to hospitals or healthcare services. They go to their local shaman or they go to yeah. their local community village worker. So, put that in context that they arrive in this country and they, you know, they have, they're starting from scratch. Yep. And without the language, like, it just, yeah, it's just... That's actually get that like that just makes me think of how, like in our what we do we have to do user flows so where people go and so in terms of navigating that where are you finding if they are arriving in Australia they don't speak English it's not it's a completely foreign land what's their first step what do they do yeah that's a really good question so essentially um so there was a sort of a, a model through the Australian Red Cross where they kind of had, almost upon arrival, so the first couple of weeks of arrival, they would almost get like an orientation day. This is public transport. This is where you find housing. This is how you, you know, this is how you find a job. And this is the Australian healthcare system. And it was just this crazy, like this was this big package. And as you you guys mentioned earlier, your primary, like, um, you know, your primary want is housing and, you know, food and to be safe. Like, the last thing on most people's minds is their healthcare. And, you know, like, you can... Probably people in the audience today are thinking, you know, when's the last time I went to the doctor or the dentist or, yep. the, you know, to get a checkup? So, as a priority, it's kind of a little bit lower down the list. And so, in our experience, what we've found is that people, when they seek healthcare, talk to their friends and their families. And so, for us to engage with communities, we find is really important in terms of capacity building yep. because then they are kind of relying on each other and then they go, oh, that's right. You know, this person said, you go to this person and then they said, then you go here and here and here. Um, and so, a lot of what we do is really educating them so that they can educate others. And I think that's a really nice community-centric model. Yeah, it's funny, actually, because I, it reminds me of the mother group model. I was really surprised when I first got... I'm from New Zealand, and I first got pregnant. I had absolutely no idea how the hospital system yeah. maternity-wise worked, and I had to call people that I know. There wasn't a pamphlet that said, yep. you could choose here, you could choose here, this is your options. So even just for the people, Western people that live here, it's really difficult. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've got okay. I've got time for one more question. Yeah. Um, so, how was there experience that made you want to set up this project? What was the impetus? Yeah. So there's a couple of um a couple of things that probably well, firstly I should say that I never never set out to start an organisation. That's the first thing because yeah. everyone goes oh how like how do you know when to start an organisation? I was like, wondering that. <laughs> no, you, you don't, and it was never kind of the impetus. But um, it was probably a combination of the fact that my parents are refugees to this country. And um, as a like as a six year old, so I was born here. So I um, I was learning English when they were learning English because they would you know have their 
cassette tapes in those days yeah. <laughs> and they would be listening and learning to read and, and that's how I learned. And so I would turn up to their doctor's appointments mm. and I was their interpreter as a six-year-old child. And so I think I learned hey. from a very early age that like the healthcare system was confusing. And so I kind of started my working life as a pharmacist. Yep. And then so I saw primary healthcare at a, you know, a very community level. Mm. And then when I went back and did medical school training, I found, you know, like just the complexities of it, yeah. it kind of made, you know, it puts it all in context. You kind of think, God, if someone from this country can't understand it, how the hell do other people from different cultures and backgrounds understand what we're doing? Yeah. So it was, it was kind of a, combina a combination of all those things yeah. and mm. some chance meetings, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for your co-presenter um, as well. Thank you very much. You get to roll around on the grass now. Lucky you. <laughs> Thank you, Linny. Now, I promised Gilbert I would announce his name with my best schoolgirl French. Uh, Gilbert Rochecoute, can you please say a vous down here? <laughs> Have a seat. So, Gilbert is the leading voice in placemaking, with making vibrant, resilient and loved places in community. And I think this is wonderful. I think... One of the issues that we you almost touched on with um, the Western model of healthcare is we really work in an illness model and we really need to shift to work in a wellness model. And part of the role of music therapy is we actually do work in a wellness model, so we push up against the illness model every day in the hospital and there is a definite shift towards that. And I think placemaking and loved places and that's the wellness that we want to bring into it. And, you know, we hope that hospitals at some point will be places of wellness as opposed to places of illness. Yeah, so that's a really good segue. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> so my first question to you, Gilbert, is actually how important do you think place is, place and environment is in terms of well-being? Good question. <laughs> and before I um, even say words to that, I might even answer that with a bit of um, a little exercise. Is that all right? I'm just going to do this. That'd be good. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He wants us all just to go. No. Born in Mauritius, I just want you to out second dance. I've been your knees and just like you're in a washing machine. Just pretend you're in a washing machine. That's it. Whatever what sort of washing machine you've got, that's it, beautiful. That's it, and you go, it's all, and then bend your knees, and then you move your hands in the air like that. Beautiful. And then repeat after me three times. I'll just do it once. Chugga, chugga, chugga. Choo, choo. I think I needed that just as much as hopefully some of you. I just needed to move. <laughs> but I think one of the things about placemaking for me is like just the concept of being embodied and to be alive, yeah? So being in a culture of, you know, Born in Africa, it's like, if you're not well, the first thing someone asks you is, when was the last time you danced? When was the last time you sang? When was the last time you drummed? You know, so they're basic things, so bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are the things that you observe after you go into a space and then you transform it? Like, what are some of your take, like, yeah, what are, your, what are some of your observations? Oh, look, that's a big question. And I think um, places are so place-specific, you know. We, we become who we are in place, yeah? Such an important thing. So places can make you feel welcome or safe or connected. And they can be culturally specific. So I think all those takeouts, all those basic needs of safety and connection and meaning. And we talked about brutalist spaces, you know. If you walk down South Bank and Docklands, they take you away from place, you know. You don't feel always connected. So I think... We need to understand basic human condition is to connect, to find meaning, to find play, to find beauty, to find something that is very specific, yep. And it's culturally specific. Like when I worked in Dandenong, I, was, you know, I lived in Dandenong for 25 years, creating Little India or, or creating you know, the vision for Abbotsford Convent or the laneways of Melbourne. All those projects are very space and place specific. But ultimately, the two principles that are born out of all this stuff is that the wisdom lies in the community. And that's a big one that we don't get. We always think we know the answer or we're the expert. And then it takes many hands to create a place. So, you know, 0.1% is basically the population that creates Melbourne. The other 99% don't get a say. It's a powerful statistic. So we need to re-embrace our... 
And as a political statement, folks, we need to re-embrace our political environments, especially now in this day and age. So you touched on some of the projects you worked on, Little India, etc. So can you tell us a little bit about that process of co-creation and kind of some of the learnings that you've had with working with some of these communities? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think um, we forget that, you know, unfortunately a lot of design professions, they start with design or they start with buildings and they start with traffic. You know, that's what you're going to get if you start with those. So I think if you start with people in place, you get people in place. And the concept of allowing that wisdom to come through with co-design processes, people will design their places. You know, we, we live in the oldest continuous wisdom on the planet that one day we'll meet the, you know, the youngest multicultural community on the planet. So that deep engagement of place and cultures who have wisdom and they understand their landscapes intuitively. So we disconnect those landscapes from people. You see some of the most loved places... We always ask the most loved places in the world, you know, we ask that question, 99% of people say a place that's pre-1945. Isn't that interesting? Because those, they would be designed before cars, you know, <laughs> one of the major reasons. But, um, but, you know, it's interesting. You know, some say Chadson Shopping Centre. I mean, I'm not... I used to be the general manager of Chadson, so I'm going to put that aside. Sorry, sorry. For five years. I know you have an afro. It's gone. <laughs> Isn't Chadson design so you can't find your way out? So then you have to keep shopping? Isn't that the Gruen well, transfer? There is a thing with that. It's actually designed to make you get lost so you buy more. That's right. I think, you know, <laughs> having lived in that space for five years and built a dozen shopping centres, I'm doing my karmic cleanse now. <laughs> You're atoning, and, sure. and, and our dominant narrative as humans, unfortunately, if you don't know it or not, is consumerism. You know, we're consumers, not citizens. So I think there's a big narrative that's unfolding now. Who are we in place? How do we build resilience in a climatic, you know, with climate change and economic corrections coming at rapid paces? Who do we, how do we sit and feel connected in place? Who are we? You know, big questions. No, massive questions, actually. <laughs> um, so in terms of the work that you've done with Village Well, um, so you've worked at... I was reading that you were, you've worked over a thousand different cities across the world. What do you think has been your most rewarding project and why? Oh, big question, yeah. Look, I think um, the, 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 the creation of the, 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 the night markets at Queen Victoria Market, hands up who's been in one of the night markets. So, yeah, so that was born out of actually having a, a traumatic experience of leaving Chadston and then feeling lost and then... I know, this was, but that's what happens. It's like, and then I was at this hippie festival called Confest and, and then I was thinking, this is how th that market was created. So I was thinking, well, this is a village. This is how people connect. There's no cars. We want to eat. We want to hear music. We want the power of free, yeah, spaces for people to connect. So something was born through that little market, which wasn't successful for the first few years, but it, it, I think it's part and parcel of people's, you know, outdoor life. You don't have to buy stuff there. You can just go and listen to music. And that's important. It's a public space. We need to protect and preserve, nourish and celebrate these environments. So, yeah. And obviously, I think, um, you know, the laneway, I was, I was based there for 15 years in Ross House, a building that promoted social justice, you know. Um, so, so, I think those two pillars of social justice and ecological justice are really important to around access and inclusiveness for those vulnerable groups that don't get access to great places. Really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you about the laneway. So tell us a bit more about the laneway project and kind of what, what things you felt were successful that, you know, yeah, made it, made it what it is today. Because we know Melbourne as those beautiful laneways and the, right. you know, the gorgeous street art and... Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I suppose in the early days we did dozens of uh, what we called illegal acts of love. I don't, I don't want you to go there and do those things, but, but we did lots of things because we had oxygen, we had patient, patient capital, we call it. Like we had permission. No one was stopping us because back in the early 90s we could just go out and do stuff. Um, because it was empty buildings and squats in the, you know, my friends were in, living in squats and a whole heap of other stuff. So Melbourne was a very different... Now... That oxygen's been taken away, unfortunately, so they've got the third generation of traders. But I think the laneways are important. The grid is a gift to, to our soul and our spirit of who we are in Melbourne because it's an ecosystem of, you know, connective little tissues that brings... that has no cars in it, but it allows small 
mom and mom and dad traders and small you know hole in the wall traders to feel connected to people and that intimacy of place and connection of place is really really very Melbourne. I think the early stencil art was very activist based. That's changed now a little bit. It was very anti-capitalist activist based. Stop the stencil. So we need to bring some of that back. <laughs> And a little bit more, like, bring, we need a bit more creative tension back in the city. St Kilda's become gentrified and lots of other places. We've lost our edge and grit, you know, and, and that's part of my challenge of my work. I, you know, I get challenged that I help gentrify environments. I know, it's a terrible thing. And I think that's why I think social justice is a big pillar of place. If we don't get inclusion zoning and make every developer 20% of affordable housing, we're not going to get affordable housing. I need to put 2 or 3%. That's why we've got this huge issue in Australia. So we need to change our planning laws and our frameworks and radically move back to, um, you know, a really egalitarian place around sense of place. Yeah. Do you think there'd be, yeah. yeah. Power to the people, power to the people. Do you think there's an end game to what you do in terms of like, do you think we'll get to the stage where one day we'll all disconnect from our mobile phones and we'll look up at the environments around us and, and actually, you know, you know, embrace what's around us and, and not not need placemakers. I don't know. Yeah, hopefully they won't need me. I'm going to go back to Mauritius and just hang out <laughs> on the beach and play my drums. I think, I think we're all going to come with you if you're not careful. That's right. And, you know, I made the laneways because I like touching people. Yeah. I've got 136 <laughs> first cousins. I don't know, not like that, but I touch people because it's all intimate. And they don't know I'm touching them. But the end game, But the end game, the end game is that, you know, ultimately... We, we are become citizens again, yeah? yeah? And then we reclaim our spaces. And I think we're in this rapid process of devolving power back to the community. Watch this space. It's happening all over the world. And the, the leading country, country is, is actually a place called Ghent in Belgium where they've got this whole concept called commoning, the 500 common projects, like the Abbotsford Convent, yeah? Mm -hmm. And commoning projects. So culture, creativity. They've got no homeless on the street in Ghent. That's what happens when you bring egalitarian, yeah? Social justice and you add that sort of layer. So that's the end game where we need to stop this us and them extremism that's happened. We've lost it in Australia and it's going to get worse until we reclaim that space. So I do sound political in this, but I think we need to get political, but we need to move very quickly to bring in that, that what I call the re-enchantment of life back into this world of what we're in here and everyone can have access to a good life. I spent time with a friend of mine who's a music therapist in Norway and my son came with me and they live on a, a beautiful place on a, on a fjord in public housing because in Norway they went, you know what, how come only the rich people get a nice view? We're not going to do that. We're going to, sure, they can have a nice view, but we're going to take 50% of that and we're going to build public housing and it's going to be affordable and people are going to be able to live there Extraordinary, and it is car free. You got to park your car underneath, and there's this gorgeous little winding village. Most, and they all have beautiful, very modest homes. Gorgeous, but they've got the million dollar view, and it is absolutely beautiful. And you know, it should be a view for everyone. We shouldn't actually call it a million dollar view. We should just go. They've got the people's view, and I think you know, I think we things are tipping, uh, and then we can see, and we are we are being political because life is political. We can see our own political parties are tipping. <laughs> Everything's tipping because people are saying, hey, you know what? We kind of don't want that anymore. So you need to change. So I'm excited. <laughs> thank you so much for your beautiful work. Yeah, thank you so much. So now I'm going to welcome Ellen Jacobson. Ja Ellen Jacobson is a social impact manager at Homey, hence her T-shirt, bit of branding there, which I do like. It's a streetwear label and I think absolutely beautiful what you're doing with your social enterprise and particularly love this um, empowerment model of, of having pathways for homelessness, for homeless people to actually get in, get a paid internship in, in the, the work sector and upskill and actually build that self-empowerment. And I think, you know, earlier on we were talking about that and to bring it back to what Isan was saying about within yourself and you're actually enabling that to happen. And I think that's just a fantastic. I read her bio and went, oh, how fantastic. It made me feel like I needed to do even more. <laughs> so wonderful. So I will now pass the baton to you. Yay, yay. And yay, Alan. Amazing work. Love your work. Thank fantastic. You. Well, we had a minute to talk just beforehand and, um, you know, I was moved by just something you said about your childhood and you, you, what you went to Brazil. So, I suppose, where was the spark to get into this work? What, 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 what drives that little something yeah. in you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think 
uh, I grew up in a small town in New South Wales um, and very low socio-economic area, um, pretty, you know, single mom, had it pretty tough. Um, and as I was navigating my way out of that town as soon as I could, I realised the limitations of what your environment is. Um, I wasn't introduced to so many different ways of thinking, um, different opportunities, and I think, yeah, that leaving that town, um, travelling and, you know, going to uni really... Um, I really realised how much privilege pays a part in your journey. Great. Fantastic. Well, I can see why you're doing this work and, and your passion. So I suppose that question leads to what do you think are the major concern in regards to, to the stigma around homelessness? Like yeah. what, what so we work um, with young people experiencing homelessness yeah. and young people make up 38% of people experiencing homelessness. Um, so they're massively over overrepresented. And the stigma... The issue with homelessness with the stigma is that it's people just assume drugs and alcohol immediately. And as Donna was speaking about um, family breakdown and unaffordable housing is the main factor for young people experiencing homelessness as well. And so it is about their opportunity in their environment um, and family, family problems. And it's not, you know, we want people to know that. And that's why we say um, that it's a person experiencing homelessness, not a homeless person, because it is a situation, it's your environment, it's, you know, something that you can move out of with the right support and care. Amazing how affordable housing becomes a key issue in this whole... Yeah. It's like the core, core, get a roof, yeah. So Absolutely. I, I, suppose, I suppose that next question I have to ask, you know, the, the brand Homie came from that study called Homelessness in Melbourne, yeah? Yes. Um, so I suppose at Village Well, we create places for and with people. Do you have some advice for us city makers um, to make Melbourne more livable for all, in particular the homeless? What would mm. the city makers need to do? Well, we're working on a project around employment yeah. and I think um, housing isn't our, our, um, our specialty. That's not the area that we work in. And so we try to stick to what we know and um, we're talking about opportunity really. And so I think for city makers, um, our advice would be to open your doors um, and open up opportunities for people experiencing homelessness and hardship to be welcomed into your space, to be welcomed into your workforces and to be welcomed into your services. Great. I suppose working in that retail area, which is you know, something I was, I was brought up in. Yeah. And, but I suppose it's, a, it's an interesting area. So I suppose in the question I, I pose to you, like, if you, you know, like a client of ours like Melbourne Central, yes. if you take Melbourne Central, for example, how do you think these commercial entities could be more socially responsible or, or become better at supporting and encouraging social enterprises like you, like yours? Because like, they, they focus on the dollar, but yes. how do we open up yeah. this, um, this opportunity? So we have just started working with Cotton On um, and they're a perfect example of this. Um, we've created a training and employment program for young people experiencing homelessness too, um, at the internship that we kind of mentioned before. And we've, Cotton On's come on board and is running the program that we created mm. in their stores. So Cotton On's employed um, three young people experiencing homelessness and hardship um, during our pilot of the expansion. Mm. Um, and we have Haynes brand on next year, which is Champion and Bonds. And they you know, we have created a program to try to empower these big retail brands to be able to do what we do with our support. So we train the managers um, and we created this program that we know that works and that we know, you know, there's these amazing young people all over Melbourne who are experiencing hardship, who want great things for themselves, who are so driven and they just need the opportunity to, you know, thrive. Um, and so it's really awesome to see that some of these big brands um, have kind of put their trust in us and are allowing us to, you know, get out, get these young guys in their, in their stores. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and it's a big global brand, Cotton On. So yeah, absolutely. I, suppose, I mean, how, does, how do you see the effects of your, you're such a purpose-driven, socially, you know, driven organisation. Yeah. How does that affect their culture? Are you doing it from the inside out or what do you see the effects? And um, the effects are, oh, there's so many, so many different outcomes, I think. Um, there's the outcome for the young person, but there's also the outcome for um, the managers and the mm. staff, the team. Um, that's a way of destigmatizing homelessness um, where, 
you've got this amazing young person um, who is just killing it in this workplace and then, you know, they might, because they have agency over their own story, they might tell their team, hey, I'm part of this program, um, I come from this background and there's the immediate, you know, um, break of that stigma. And also once we talk about the program bringing in these different stores, um, the stigma is broken from the customer's perspective as well. You know, when our, our goal with our interns is that if you walk into the homey store, you don't know who's an intern. Um, and so, you know, a customer knows that knows what we do, knows that there's interns working in our space, and they come in and they're served by a beneficiary of the program, and they probably can't tell who's the intern and who's the homie staff member and who's the manager and whatever. So there's stigma breakdown on many different levels. Mm. I suppose, in, you know, there's a big question, and some, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, you know, I, I struggle sometimes when I walk past... A, a young person on the street who's homeless. What, what advice would you do? What do we? What can the average person do? What do we? Mm. How do we engage? It's such a big one. Yeah, it is so. That question is so hard. Yeah. Um, I think people sleeping rough on the street only make up six percent of people experiencing homelessness, um, and so that's the public-facing issue. Um, and so we do um, get asked a lot that question. Um, but I would say I kind of try to recommend to people to support services that are empowering people to move out of that situation. Um, yeah, I don't. That's it's I. A, I find yeah, I one. yeah, and I ask myself what to do every day as yeah. well when I you know when I'm walking around the city and I see people experiencing homelessness as well. Like I don't know. It's a big question. It's a big it's question. A big question. <laughs> we'll have a couple of hours later. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to do some African dancing beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> Your brand puts the spotlight on social housing issues and the life on the streets in Melbourne, yeah? But how do you think mainstream media and the city of Melbourne could better tell these stories? Mm. So, we just recently worked with the project um, and they um, did a campaign for Homie and they oh, wow. were a really great example of um, cool. adopting the language that we use and not sensationalising the issue. So they, they looked at the facts of homelessness. They talked about a person experiencing homelessness. Um, they used empathetic and empowering language to talk about the futures of the young people and not the past. And they really adopted, um, you know, that anti-stigmatising approach to speaking about homelessness where you see in so many um, media outlets that it's, it's you great. know, youth on, you know, youth on the streets and drugs and alcohol and, yeah, um, you know, today, tonight, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't know. I think we just really need to move away yeah. from that kind of language yeah, yeah, and that yeah. kind of stance because it's totally just perpetuating mm. the stigma and, you know, young people experiencing homelessness, they're on couches, they're couch surfing, yeah. they're in overcrowded, overcrowded dwellings. Mm. Um, it's just a completely different situation to what people actually, mm. you know, think it is. Yay for you. You're a legend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. That was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Gilbert. <laughs> and I think that is in a really important point. I think um, more and more there is, a, there is that self-awareness of how we talk about things and what we say. So, you know, it's women experiencing family violence, not, you know, that, that sort of that more sort of victim language is disappearing, which is just good. And I think we, one thing we could do is actually just check ourselves. You know, how do you talk about it with your friends? What do you – What and don't be grumpy at yourself if you suddenly go, I don't know, like, oh, he's homeless. Just say, actually, no, it's a person experiencing homeless. And, and that kind of shift will actually shift you and your thinking and your friends and, and call them out gently. You know, my son spends a lot of time calling me out because a lot of the, the way I was brought up, a lot of the language is, is different and it's changed and, and – and, you know, I'm very grateful for having that awareness model and I think that we should all just, you know, just gently call ourselves out. It doesn't, doesn't hurt and it will, make a, it will make a shift. I must say, as a, I won't say a consumer, but someone who buys items in stores, if I actually knew they had an internship, I'd probably be more inclined to go and buy my stuff there. So as a marketing boy, I mean, if you're going to, I think it's a great, I would like to see that more something they're really proud of, you know, and then that people can actually choose to support that. We do that, you know, with um, things that using recyclables and, you know, uh, my daughter's a vegetarian and all that, you know, we all choose to go in those places. So now we will introduce, he's come up already, Mark. Mark Ayres is a designer and he leads a service design practice called At Today. 
and he's which is just strategic design agency created to have a positive impact on the world. So that's right. We'll talk to Mark and we'll all be sorted, which will be fantastic. <laughs> very exciting and lovely to have you here, Mark. And Mark gets his own back because he gets to interview me at the very end. <laughs> okay. Mark. Hi. Hey. Um, I loved learning about today. Um, when I read today is a strategic design agency created to have a positive impact on our world. Um, I have to admit, I didn't really know what that meant um, initially. You're not, you're not the first. Did some research. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit tricky. Um, can you tell us about today? Sure. What is it? What do you do? Yeah. So um, today works, I, I guess, in the intersection between organisations, so government and private organisations and people. So uh, our role is to help government organizations understand more about the people that use their services and then help them redesign those services so they're more aligned with what people need. We do that by all of our projects, we go out and do research. So anytime someone approaches us, we'll go and do research with the people that are actually intended on using those services. So we'll actually go to people's homes, go to people's organizations um, and experience what it's like for them doing those certain things. And then from that point on, it kind of kicks off a design process where we will create new services, work with design teams, bring the people with lived experiences and the users of the service together, and uh, hopefully create something that's a bit better than it was before. Mm. That's the goal. <laughs> How does, did that, you does that actually answer your question, or does I've, that still I've, keep it quite No. <laughs> and does anyone else need some elaboration? We're good. I think we're, I think we're good. Yeah, okay. um, how did you find your way into this organization? Uh, yeah, so... My, I, I've always been interested in design and I've always been interested in the way that people use things. So I did industrial design at university and uh, a big part of the industrial design process is the, the front end design research part, uh, which requires a, a sort of deep practice of observation and just, just watching the way people do different things in their lives. And it's fascinating just the different ways that people can open a jam jar, which is actually one of the case studies that I <laughs> did early on. Um, but often that work is used to, uh, uh, I guess, stimulate new creative solutions, but in quite the sort of large corporate world. So those observations tend to end up being new packages on a shelf, new um, enticing things to go and buy. Uh, which, because that's where the money is. And, and typically, a lot of this uh, work is reserved for those, those large corporations. And actually, being able to slowly move through the process of uh, working in industrial design companies and then in, some, in a digital company and then now at Today, being able to do this work at Today is, uh, is it's very rewarding because, we're, yeah, we're applying all of the things that we've learned in the past in, in those other industries to actually solving some of the more sort of complex social problems that we've got today. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a favorite project <laughs> that you've worked on that comes to mind when we think about talking about well-being? Yes. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Tell us. Um, uh, so really, really the projects that interest me are the ones that really challenge me and the ones that um, mean that I, I get to learn a lot of different things. And the one that definitely stands out is, is probably one of the smallest projects that I did, which was uh, working with DHHS around the time that same-sex adoption became legal in Victoria. So it was great that it was made legal. But then at the same time, uh, DHHS recognized that actually we haven't, we don't actually know a lot about the process itself and what people have to go through um, and potentially where discrimination may occur anyway in the process. And so uh, we were asked to help them to learn a bit more about the process and, and, and how it goes and, and help them reconsider different steps along the way and, and what, uh, what maybe can be done to uh, make it a bit less of a painful experience to, to go through it. So I, I don't know if you know much about the adoption process, but it's incredibly invasive it, and, and probably should be, some may argue. Uh, so it requires a lot of quite deep investigations into people's lives, um, their sexual history, their, their relationship history, their family makeup, all sorts of really quite sort of invasive um, topics, which is hard enough as it is for, um, for, for any couple to go through it. And then the system is obviously historically Catholic as well, so there's still some strong religious um, kind of yeah, history that, that it affects the way that the process is at the moment. Um, so 
we undertook a process of actually learning and meeting same-sex couples that were potentially going to adopt children. We also met same-sex couples that uh, had become permanent carers, which is quite a similar process and was already legal at the time, as well as straight couples that had gone through the adoption process. And we, we kind of looked at comparisons across those different experiences and tried to unpick um, where there were difficulties along the way. And there were some really fascinating things that we learned. For example, uh, same-sex couples that had gone through the permanent care process, they had filled in a form, and somewhere on the form it said um, something along the lines of, uh, have you had an HIV test? Uh, and, and, and there was some allusion to intravenous drug users at the same sort of place. And there was this deep offense that it was being caused because uh, it was a sense of lumping um, same-sex couples in the same boxes, intravenous drug users, and they were really offended about it. I think what actually transpired is that everybody had to answer that question, but it was just because of this history of being used to being discriminated against that they started to view all of these experiences in such a different way. Um, so yeah, it, it was a small project, and I, I hope the, the impact that we made on the process was uh, was, a, was a positive one. It's, it's hard, and this is an ongoing challenge for us to know the long-term impact that we do have. But um, for me, that was really the most rewarding. I mean, more than anything, it was something that I just didn't know anything about. You know, I have, mm. don't know anything about adopting children, that's for sure. I know a bit now. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea of um, being able to use your skills to contribute to an issue or a problem that's not always the, in the most obvious way. Mm. And, you know, we've kind of finding our way through fashion and you guys finding your way through what you do. Um, what is it like working across lots of different societal problems you know you'll you'll be one day talking about um working towards adoption and then then another you know the so you're working on yeah. lots so many different projects yeah, yeah, yeah what is that like um both really challenging and really rewarding mm. so uh it's it's incredibly rewarding for me because it means that every project that i do i'm probably learning about something completely different at the moment i'm doing workplace health and safety i've done a little bit of work in youth homelessness. Uh, I've worked in the same-sex adoption areas, all sorts of different things. And I find it fascinating. It's that experience that we all get when we're learning something new. And it's those first few weeks of like, wow, this is such an amazing subject. And then it all becomes really daunting because you realize how big this topic is and how little you then know and how much you need to know, learn from then on. Um, and so the challenging side of it as well is, is kind of being an amateur in a world of people that are experts. And I, I remember when I first started working, uh, a colleague of mine described it as, uh, we have to become experts in a subject in four weeks. And obviously that's just not possible. Um, and, and sometimes it just, it, it, I find it frustrating because yeah, I'm trying to help create solutions and I know so little. Um, so I really have to pull on all of the skills and knowledge of people around me to, to get them to design the solution so I don't have to. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, on the Today website, it opens with, progress requires dedication to unconventional ideas. Does it? Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, it, good, yeah. <laughs> it really resonated with me. Yeah. How important do you think it is, these un unconventional ideas, doing things in a yeah. new way? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we kind of operate a little bit in the mindset of the status quo isn't working. And um, we have set up the way that we operate and the types of skills that we have in the, in the building. So we have, we have researchers and strategists, as well as interaction creative designers, as well as developers, so coders, people that write code. Um, and we're really, key, really sort of uh, focused on bringing lots of sort of mixed, mixed skills and mixed knowledge together to be able to solve problems. And that also obviously includes the sort of experts on the subject, whoever it may be on that project. Um, and very much uh, we try our absolute best to shake up the way that things have been done previously uh, with an intention of creating something that's meaningfully better but also quite different to the way things are. Love that. If you could pick one area of wellness, something that you're passionate about, that you would like our community as a whole mm. to offer more support to those in need, what would it be? Uh, I I, mm. <laughs> I I do think healthcare, and I think, um, but I think the kind of non-pharmaceutical sides of healthcare. I, I've started reflecting a little bit on how um, socially exclusive a lot of the sort of holistic, um, natural 
uh, paths of treatment are and how beneficial that they are. But it's also incredibly, it, it is a much more expensive path of treatment and looking after yourself. If you think about essential oils, yoga classes, meditation, they're all kind of pitched at, I would say, the elite. And so, uh, yeah, that would be my one. <laughs> Brilliant. Let's do that then. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to move into your seat now. Oh. All right, Mark, you can introduce me. <laughs> oh, okay. No, it's all right. I think I did the, the beginning. It's fine. It's up to you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, kind of a good segue because thinking about access to services, so you're our music therapist. Um, uh, in terms of uh, the improving the access to services, so I think a lot of, of well-being and uh, wayfinding as... Uh, as, a, as, an, an, as an access thing, as well as how easy the services are to, to do. What are the types of things that you do that enable um, access from maybe the people that it's not so natural to, to get into music therapy? Um, so that's the main thing I'm passionate about, is providing more people more access to music therapy and music in their health experience. So at the Royal Melbourne, 20 years ago, I knocked on the door and said, you haven't got any music therapy here. Adults in crisis need support too. I'm a big believer in public health, so I went straight to the Royal Melbourne. And um, what's more, you can have me for free for six months because I needed to qualify. And they went, sure, fine, in you come. And then after six months, I left. And then they called me back and I began the position, a paid position. So they actually, the hospital said, the nurses are complaining, the doctors are complaining, but most importantly, the patients are complaining. They want to have access to music therapy. So that's how I started. And I've built the department over the years with a shared model of trialling and testing. So getting a philanthropist, I work very closely with philanthropists, um, really excited about what they could possibly do with the impact of their money. And um, we trial programs in different areas in the hospital. And then the hospital, then once we demonstrate it works, say, all right, well, we'll now integrate that because music therapy is part of allied health. So it's part of physiotherapy, speech therapy, etc. So my passion in increasing access, obviously, our bedside services tends to be one-on-one on one and then with the family, but I'm also a big believer in the ripple effect. So if I write an original song with the patient, so that's their song, not, not mine, I get the song out, that has a ripple effect. So we record it and they share that song with their family and their friends, so more people have access to that. We have environmental music. We have one of the largest volunteer programs. About 38 volunteers play live music. So if you walk into the Royal Melbourne now, it's a bit odd if there's not someone playing. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to the time when people go, what do you mean you haven't got music and art in your hospital? I'm not going to come here. You know, that, that's, that's my future I'm hoping for. Uh, so we have access in that so people can move through the music and, and connect with it if they want to. And they're not music trained music therapists. They're help, we call them health musicians. A lot of them are doctors, so the idea is that then they then provide access to music to their patients later on, and they actually go out as big advocates and actually do go to hospitals and if they're on placement, say, like, why don't you have any music here? That's crazy. I'll bring my friends. We'll come and play. So in that sense, I am 100% committed to access. And also, sometimes for us, our, our job is just to remind someone about the relationship they have with music and how they can use that to help navigate things in their lives. Some people will need us every day throughout their journey and their treatment. People that have strokes and they can't speak but they can sing, you can give them access to rehabilitation and back to, to regaining their function. Some people just need you to say, hey, didn't you used to play guitar? Yeah, I did, but since things have been... Yeah, but why don't we sit together and play? And then next thing you know, every time you go and see them, they're practising in the, in the ward. So... Did that answer that? So it's... Very much so. Yeah. It's, I, I, I try and get the sort of the... the one-on-one, -on -one, the micro, but also really the macro happening is at the same time. Yeah, great. And you, you mentioned at the beginning that you work with philanthropists and, and you sort of started off this work uh, trialling a few approaches. In the 90s. In, <laughs> in the 90s. It's a good decade. Um, yeah, so, uh, and, and I know that some of the challenges that we have actually is, is trying to measure what, what is effective use of, of the work that we're doing, how do we know we're making a difference, how are we choosing one thing over another thing in terms of really we're all existing to make impact, make a difference, how are we prioritising things, and measurement is obviously a big part of culture and society, I suppose, these days as well. What, what's your approach to measuring... Uh, what's working and what's not and how are you doing it? Oh, well, I, because I live in a health model, I have to do research. So, you know, so I can talk the language. But I think a, a really good measure is what would you want when you're in hospital for your loved ones? 
you know, and they know they tend to say, I would really like good care that's comprehensive with someone listening to me and who I am as a person. Uh, I don't want things done to me. I want things done with me. Uh, and so, yes, we can, we can probably demonstrate now or at the point where we can say, okay, if you engage in music therapy, you'll get home sooner. And they're very, great, that'll save money for the hospital dollar, fantastic, we'll give you, we'll spend 100 bucks here because we'll save 20, it's more than that, but we'll save $20 here. So, or we'll save 200 later on. And I think society is evolving to that point that, you know, we really have to invest in wellness. We have to invest in, if, if I'm working with a, a young uh, person who has cancer, who's dying, and if I can help to make that death more peaceful and more resolved, it's not just their death, it's their whole family, you know? And we can actually see, and it's very hard to study, but these people are less likely then to go through, you know, illness themselves because they've dealt with a, a stressful event in a sort of more comprehensive way. Can I show that on a dollar, in a, on a piece of paper? Probably not, but I am a, a big believer in, um, you know, almost putting something there, taking it away for a moment, and then people say, actually, we really miss that. And I think that's part of the problem is that people don't get to experience things. Once someone has that experience, they want it again, and they want it again, and they become the advocates for you. Um, I also would hand on heart say the music therapy is probably one of the cheapest things you can put in the hospital and it does save the health dollar. And I'm quite unashamed about that. And I would also say to someone, well, show me why you don't use music as opposed to why you do. So I think you have to be slightly pig-headed about it as well. And passionate. I mean, we need to, we need to just embrace these things. And as you were saying earlier, you know, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be an elite thing to have music and wellness. Every... Two-thirds of our population at the Royal Melbourne Hostel with the patients, don't, English isn't their first language. So we work in the multicultural area. We work with women who are experiencing family violence. We work with homelessness, you know, people experiencing homelessness. So we're, that's why I love public health because we can give them, you know, this extraordinary music and wellness experience which they can then take out into their lives. Uh, I, I remember, I think I was reading something that you were saying at some point where... Um, it, it, it's still quite a new field and it's growing and the, the, the body of research in it ha has been growing quite a lot in the period of time that you've been working in it. Uh, what are the types of things that, that we are kind of exploring now in music therapy that maybe back in the 90s it wasn't even in your mind? Um, look, I think we're... I think what we're actually doing is we're, we were playing very much with numbers as well. So my PhD was looking at the impact of guided songwriting, so in creating original song on a person's health and well-being and mood. So I played with numbers, I used standardised measures so I could tell the story with numbers and statistics, but I also played with quality research as well. And I think what's happening now, and it's interesting with healthcare as well, the only reason why you need a million people to um, say that uh, Panadol works is because it only works a little bit. So if you look, so to get to prove something that works in a study, you need a lot of numbers. If something has a big impact, you actually don't need that many, I'm talking pure numbers here, that many numbers to prove what, what it is. So I think we're also accepting that what we do does have a large impact and that we measure that impact with numbers, but with smaller numbers. We don't have to say, oh, five million people experience music therapy and, and therefore statistically significant. I mean, my subject, my patient only had 50 and we found statistical significance um, in their experience in health and well-being. I think we're doing that. And I think also um, health is moving very much towards quality research too. Do you find that music therapy is more or less effective for different, uh, different types of treatment or even different types of people? So the art of music therapy is for me to work out how you need to or want to use music therapy. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's for everybody because nothing's for everybody by any stretch of motion. Uh, you know, so, but some people will want it at different times in their lives. And I think it's also respecting that space. So I might introduce music therapy to someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer and they're like, well, you know what, I've just, <laughs> it's too much right now. And then two weeks later, actually, I'd really like to engage in that now. Uh, you know, we have a lot of research about regaining functions I mentioned earlier, different parts of the brain. We do know that participating in live music is the one thing that takes your entire brain to do. Absolutely. So, please, sing in a choir. 
pick up an instrument, have a jam. It doesn't matter what you sound like, just enjoy it because that actual participation is the best brain gym you can ever do. And we also know that the brain, if it is injured, you know, if something does happen to you and you've got more what we call global processing in our brains, you'll actually recover better if you have already got that kind of, that, again, that wellness. I, I don't like to use the word preventative because it's like, oh, something's going to happen. But just the wellness model will actually help bring all that. I've suddenly, I think I've forgotten your question. <laughs> I was off on this brain tangent. It's been very hot. I think it, was, it was a good tangent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, well, yeah, I was, I was wondering if there are certain, uh, well, certain yeah, conditions certain people. or certain people that uh, look, I think respond better or worse. I often get asked this question. I think you just have to want to do it. You know, I can't force you to to use music for your well-being. You're going to want it. You have to want to do it. I can sit opposite someone who's had a stroke in the left side of their brain and I know for a fact that if they sing that they'll they'll get their language back. But if they don't want to sing, I, I can't I, – we, we, can't, we can't break down that barrier. We try to and we'll try and go this way and that way and that way and round that way. But the people have to, to – and also to – and our role is to – they want to do it but we, we shape it in a way that makes it so easy and accessible. We don't make it difficult to be part of it. We don't make it – I mean, it is challenging because, let's face it, who's, who's used to – you know, you're lying in bed and someone's sitting at the end playing the guitar to you. It's not like, oh, that's a bit odd. But once Have you, you got any examples? Um, what? Of people that you've kind of worked through those barriers and you, you've kind of oh, yeah, you've uh, look, turned them around and, and yeah, often playing in a band. Yes, I do actually. I used to work a lot with um, young women who uh, had eating disorders and um, a lot of the – it's a very complicated um, illness and um, very much so they would have a behavioural approach which is like, you know, you must eat this and you must do this and you must do that. I was like, nah, they can just come in if they feel like it and play some music if they want. And I think giving them that freedom to participate and I do remember this one young woman – the first three sessions, she stood at the door. There was just no way she was going to engage with me. Absolutely. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And then she came and sat down and then she came and then eventually was playing and singing. And I think it's just allowing people, and I'm gonna, it's going to sound like a pun, but their own rhythm, to find their own time to come in, you know, to find their own way in and being open to that. And, and you know, examining my own bias through that process you know I was working very much in a healthness mo I said healthness model health model <laughs> probably is which was very behavioral you don't weigh this much you don't litter you can't go home and I was very much like hey who are you what sort of songs do you want so it's how you approach things I think and yeah I'll, I'll remember remember her when you know and often we get the you're, you're a what so one of the challenges is how we introduce music therapy for people in their lives yeah we're, we're good. Well, thank you very much. That, so now we, we're going to – I was just wanted to thank all the speakers. I'll jump back into my other role. Thank you, everybody. It's been an extraordinary – I don't want to say journey because that's like wayfinding, but it's been a great experience. I know this, a lot of the speakers are still here as well. Does anyone have any burning questions? Yeah? Oh, here we go. I'll give you – do you want the mic? Here you go. Um, thank you, guys. This has just been probably one of the most amazing and uh, enriching and broad and deep um, sessions ever. Um, this is not for bang for buck as well, but maybe it's a bang for buck type of question. Um, for everyone here remaining, I was very curious because your backgrounds are so diverse in terms of the impact that you currently seek, the journeys and the people that you work with. And I wondered very much about the maybe this is a bit of an assumption, about the humanness that's at the essence of everything that you do. So the people that you work with, whatever patients or homeless candidates or cities. And I wondered if you all each had just one message for every individual. So not so much big societal changes, but if you had one individual, so if you're facing somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you said, I really want you to understand that this is the one thing you can do from tomorrow onwards or from this moment onwards that will change um, your life, everyone else's life, what would that be? That's beautiful. Let's because that, that was the exact challenge I gave Iceland at the beginning. So let's apologize. Let's give it a go. Should we pass the mic around? One thing, you put you on the spot now. <laughs> One thing that we um, 
say to the young people that come to our interviews and apply for our jobs and they come, um, they come to the shop on their first day um, and they're absolutely shitting themselves and they already feel like failure is in their future. Um, but they've gotten themselves there. They have the self-determination to apply and they want good things for their lives as young, most young people do. Um, and we say, we believe in you. We know that you're going to do it. Um, we know that you can do it and we're going to support you. So, you know, we kind of create that safe space for them to try and learn and fail um, and just go, you know, we've got your back, we're in your corner and that, you know, creates a space for them to succeed. Next. <laughs> um, excuse me. I, I would say the one thing that uh, I feel is the most valuable is listening to a person and really understanding deeply what they need. Uh, it's something that I still find really difficult, but it's something I work really hard at. Um, and there, there is nothing that beats being in front of another person and actually uh, taking the time to understand what matters. The, the one thing that, um, that we do say to people who we work very closely with is that a lot, a lot of people come through a sort of a shame um, situation. So people experiencing homelessness, family abuse, uh, long-term unemployment, uh, recent release from prison, all of those situations. And one of the first things that we get them to understand is it's not your fault that um, we're not judging you, we're not blaming you. Um, you. You possibly are the only one who can actually change things, but where you are now is not your fault. And you, you and to sort of let go of any, um, any, any personal shame or blame that they're carrying with them. Um, so I continue on from... Um uh, what Emma asked me about. So I think one thing I would say would be to, um, to um, find the courage to explore and uh, find the power in you because there's so much power in you that you just need to discover inside you. And then once you find that power, then um, you actually become more humble and more... Um, uh, like you surrender, and that's when things, good things, will happen to you. So, yeah. Uh, this really is like a relay. Isn't good it? question. <coughs> uh, important thing that I would uh, pass on to people is um, not to devalue the impact and importance of play for adults. So, um, because as, you know, obviously for children, it's hugely important as part of their development and we value that. Uh, but then as adults, we kind of trivialize it and see it just as entertainment, which is good. It's a good distraction, but actually can be productive and um, life-changing as well. Um, I suppose something I tell my students, whether they're having trouble doing an assignment or if they're having a really shitty day, um, I tell them to ask for help. Ask for help again and again. And if you don't like what that person tells you to do or if it doesn't resonate with you, then go ask for help from somebody else and then somebody else and somebody else until you find something that does resonate with you. Um, and eat, eat well. Find food that you like and eat lots of it. It uh, must be nearly the last one. Uh, the, so if I take it from our um, multicultural work with refugee programs, um, the two things, create the, uh, create the really consistent environment that is there and gets tested time and time again. So similar story to the person uh, in the music side of things. Doesn't have to work the first time. You're always there. And what we tend to find is it can be two to three years before those people start to trust and then you start to get some real momentum behind the programming. The other one is, of course, uh, role modelling. Just incredible role models who have similar backgrounds is, is a very powerful thing. Yeah, the importance of um, just following that gut feel, that intuition, and, and surrounding yourself with good people and lots of disco dancing. <laughs> That's a perfect segue because I actually just say, look, you know what? Music's really good for you. It, it's, and it's right there and you can do it. Anyone can sing. Anyone can move. 
You can listen to it. It's all around you and just be in it, you know, and, and embrace it. I would like to give very special thanks to everybody today. I've had a lovely time up here. I feel like you know, Princess Punch just sitting on the seat. And I'd also thank you to our interpreters. They have been working so hard. Come up, Luke. Come on. Erin and Luke, thank you so much. So It's so beautiful to, to watch. I'm, I'm jealous that you got to see her do all these wonderful, beautiful movements. She's like, can you stop talking, Emma? Thank you, everyone. Look, I think everyone's hanging around for a little bit. I'm certainly going to hang around for an, another cuppa. Uh, thank you so much. What an exciting, inspiring day. Thank you to all the speakers. Thank you for all your wonderful questions and all the thought. Enjoy. Thank you. You are listening to an Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.